Hi, this is Adrian Paul, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hello, this is BT Edney. I played Heather in the original Highlander film, and you are watching Highlander Rewatched. This is Andy Armstrong. I was the second unit director, directing the action units in New York on the original Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Anthony Devonges, also known as the Davion Consoli, from the Wendy episode of Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Grayson. I played Amanda on Highlander the Series and the spin-off called Highlander the Raven, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatch. Everybody involved with Highlander has stories, and they're great, great stories. This is John Mosby, the author of Fearful Symmetry, the essential guide to all things Highlander, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Ken Gord, producer of the Highlander series, and you are listening to the podcast Highlander Rewatched. Hey, this is Stan Kirsch. I played Richie Ryan on Highlander, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Clay Boris, director of Highlander, the TV series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Gillian Horvath. I helped write Highlander Endgame and Highlander the series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. This is Martin Neufeld. I played Lieutenant John Sten in Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is Andy Morahan. I'm the director of Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, and you are listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi, this is F. Bron McCash. I was the Swordmaster fight choreographer for the Highlander television series, series 3, 4, 5, and 6, and the fourth movie, Highlander Endgame. And you are listening to the Highlander Rewatched podcast. Good on ya! Hi, this is Donna Alesso. I was script coordinator and associate creative consultant on Highlander the series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Hi there, Highlander fans. This is Richard Martin. I directed nine fabulous episodes of uh, Highlander, the TV series, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Listen often. This is Edwin Itzy Atkins. I was the production manager on the original Highlander film, and you're listening to Highlander Rewatched. Welcome to the Highlander Rewatch Podcast, where each and every week we talk about another facet of the Highlander universe. This week we have a very special Chronicle episode where we talk to the people uh, that help make Highlander possible, the people behind the scenes, in front of the camera, behind the camera. Welcome to the show this week, a very special guest. We are talking to Mr. Edwin Itzy Atkins. Welcome to the show! Well, thank you. We got that correct. (laughs) (laughs) This is good times, and we are here today because... You were the production manager on the original Highlander film. For the uh, the unwashed at home, could you uh, please let the, the, the folks at home know what a production manager does? Well, it's the um, key guy that 
preps and gets everything ready, signs the checks, hires the crew, takes the fault if there's problems. Basically, I worked for the producer. And with Highlander, that was John Stark, who I'd worked with many times. And so uh, we do the locations and we do the crew and we supervise. I had to supervise two units, the first unit and the second unit. But it's a, it's a difficult job. The guy that has to uh, make sure the money comes in and the schedule's followed. I'm sure you're also the person everyone gets mad at if uh, there's a yeah, problem right. with either of those two things. Right, you're right. So you were working with both the first and second unit. Uh, how right. was it working with Russell Mulcahy? Well, you know, he didn't speak much English. So um, when he arrived, you know, he didn't, he didn't say much. I mean, he knew his lines, but it wasn't like you could have a conversation with him. The first thing I did is hire a first AD that could speak French, Francois Moulin. He could chat with uh, Christopher. You know, that was very important. Other than the language barrier, it was not a problem. I mean, he he really was uh, knew his lines and and very personable kind of guy. What about the director? How was it working Uh, with him? Well, that's another story. Oh, Oh. he's a very good director, but he really does like rain. He does like water and he likes shooting at night. And uh, those combinations uh, with all of the stunts that we were doing presented problems. There was a water shortage in New York at that time, so they banned taking water from the city for rain towers. So we had to bring it in from New Jersey. Wow. (laughs) So you basically had to import Um, water into the city. Yeah, and Russell wanted everything covered in rain. You, you might be looking at one scene, but he'll want rain to the left, to the right, behind you, everywhere. And even rain, even rain on the top of the um, silver cup roof, which means bringing rain towers and not only the, the luma crane and all the other stuff that went on the roof. You got to put rain up there because it matched. That was one thing that was important in Highlander way before we started shooting. The people in UK had to match everything. So they wanted way before they came to New York, police uniforms, police IDs, pictures of the garage, everything that we were going to shoot in New York, they had to pre-shoot and match in the UK. So the silver cup signs, all the details. If you notice the garage sequence, uh, which was shot in UK, mm-hmm. and we only shot the exit of it, signage had to match. Again, rain at night. But Russell did a good job. Russell the Rain Man. <laughs> so um, how, how did you get involved in the film Highlander to, to begin with? Well, you see, I did a lot of movies that came to New York for a short period of time. So they would come to New York. But John Stark, who I, like I said, worked for, and David Stark, who ran second unit, we were considered probably the best team for locations in New York shooting. And I had specialized in locations. So they asked John, and and John brought his team in, which was me and David and, and a really good crew that we've worked with many, many times. Panzer Davis was from New York, and they knew John. So it was a, it was a good family of people. You mentioned that you do a lot of location work. Are there any particular locations in the Highlander film that really have your stamp on them? Well, you see, that's what I feel I'm most proud of about my work on Highlander was that when Andy Armstrong, who uh, was this coordinator for that, and I'd worked with his brother, Vic Armstrong, on Clear and Present Danger, um, creating this stunt that ended up at Silver Cup was really a design that I'm very proud of because they have to come to New York and say, what will you let us do? You know, we'd like to do this and this and this, but they start with, working with the city and with me to say, okay, what are your ideas about the chase? What can we do? What do you think the city will let us do? So designing that stunt with Andy was uh, monumental to the film. 
you know, starting on the West Side Highway with the uh, 16-wheelers, the moving vans. And I guess uh, Armstrongs like to hit motorcycles because they did that in Highlander. We did it again in Clear and Present Danger. <laughs> but again, it was at night and uh, spark hits on the 59th Street Bridge and then getting up on top of the roof and the signs falling and the sword fighting. And Christopher dropped his sword into the airbag and punctured it. So that was a delay. Oh, <laughs> wait, wow. wait. What happened? Yeah. Well, he did. He did claim uh, that um, that he didn't remember that, which he probably didn't, because you know it was just the puncture that made it unsafe to use that airbag. So there was a delay in getting another one in. And we probably moved on to another shot. But everything that had water on the roof that was done in the tank in in England. What we did was everything that you could see the city of New York in the background, Brenda hanging off of the scaffold with the New York background. So other than designing the stunt, my biggest challenge was to keep all of New York lit all the way from 34th Street to 59th Street and everything that faced the river. Well, that was quite a feat and for several nights. We paid all the buildings to keep their lights on. We wow. paid the, you know, the bridge. All the major buildings were lit. But there's many apartments right on the river that needed to have lights on. So we did a grid of every apartment building for all of those blocks, made contacts with the supers. I had a crew of about 25 PAs, which had a grid. And we printed a special promo piece, which I have in front of me. And it showed the entire city lit from the bridge and all the way down. It said, and you thought Queen was just a traffic lane between you and the JFK. Next weekend, train your binoculars across the river on the roof of Silver Cup Studios, where we will be staging a climactic battle in the sequence of Highlander a major movie from 20th Century Fox. So we can see you. The skyline of Manhattan will co-star with Sean Connery, Greystoke, Christopher Lambert. So let's show off our city. If your window faces the river, please leave your lights on till dawn, July 12th and 13th. Join in this spectacular portrait of Manhattan. So basically, I try to make everybody that owned the apartment say, oh, I'm in the movie. My lights are on. Right. Was, um, how was the rate of compliance? Did uh, most people... Well, it was good. Okay, it was good. But you, you'll start to see they start to go out later in the night. <laughs> it, it, it's those scenes on Silver Cup, looking back, they're pretty good. I mean, you can see there's a city there. But when uh, the ending scene where they blow out the windows and all of New York is bright, right outside the, the windows... That was the translite. And that was another thing that took a lot of time in pre-production. Alan White came over and shot translites all over the city. The ones that you see out of McLeod's office, which was in England. The last scene, the translites for the city all lit up. So that was like a whole mini-movie that we had to do, was getting all of these large format cameras on tops of roofs all over New York to get these in time for them to start using them in the UK. So there was a lot of other stuff other than the scenes. A lot of the stuff we shot, they didn't use. I mean, we did a whole thing in the in the zoo they didn't use. Can you tell us more about the scenes that weren't used, like the zoo scene? We started on July 8th. We shot exterior of the band shell in Central Park, the bridge at Central Park, the Bow Bridge, the hot dog stand outside of the St. Regis, the news vendor, exterior of McLeod's house, and exterior of the Spring Street. Now, that was 27 scenes, 20 and 2 eighths pages. Okay, that's a lot of work. I mean, we started at 6 a.m. 
and crew wrap was at 6.45 p.m. And, of course, the next day, we did the exterior zoo at Prospect Park. We did the interior of the bar scene, P.J. Clark, and the exterior of that bar scene. But we had a split day, so we came in at noon, 11.59, and the camera wrap was at 1.15 in the morning. 1.15 in the morning? Wow. Yeah, it was a split day. So we would shoot some day work, like the zoo, and inside the bar. But then, you know, when she comes out of the bar, it's night. That's why we're doing a split day. Then the next day, we did exterior of Betso's house, the exterior of the library, which is where she went to look for records. The exterior of the Anzonia Hotel, where Kruger went in and stayed, and the exterior of Madison Square Garden, which was a big deal. And again, that was a split day. We came in at noon, and we wrapped at 3 a.m. Wow. Well, this was the night where the city uh, required out-of-state uh, water trucks, because there was a ban on, on water in, in New York City at that time. And that exterior of the Madison Square Garden was a lot of work. I might say that, you know, in the first scene, I had spent a ton of time getting the Madison Square Garden approved, getting the New York hockey team approved, getting the hockey team that they were playing approved, and telling everybody we're going to shoot hockey for the opening. And then like a week before, the hockey vice president said, no, we're going to deny you using hockey wow. because we're you, you will portray it as a violent sport. Whatever well, could make you do that? <laughs> what, 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 what about the sport? What a laughter. What laughter. I mean, <laughs> hockey is not a violent sport. Come on. Anyway, <laughs> it's like it the sport known for people from... punching each other. Yeah. More yeah, even than it, boxing. But it was the right thing. The hockey sticks going against each other, cutting to the sword play, you know? It just all worked. I mean, it was like the Scottish scene that followed it. And it left me with a lot of problems because I wasn't prepared to have it denied that late in pre-production. So we got the World Wrestling Federation to agree. And, of course, they'll do anything. <laughs> and then we had this special sky cam, Garrett Brown sky cam, which was on bungee cords. It was stretched all the way across Madison Square Garden so that camera could float all over the top. Well, just the pre-production of setting all that camera stuff up took days. So there was a lot going on. I hope they didn't ho hold me responsible for the hockey, um, but that was a big downer. Sure. Uh, so well, it I seems like you get saddled with all the uh, the paperwork and the oh, yeah, uh, bureaucratic the, process. Yeah, well, I have to set all the legal end up, you know. Now, of course, the producer, John Stark, was very helpful. So now we're on like, uh, I don't know, day four or something. We're doing the Silver Cup. It's rain, wind, and lightning. Now, rain and lightning began at 10.55 and continued to 11.30. So we had to stop shooting. Shooting stopped for safety reasons, determined by the crew. Three-hour rain delay. Oof. I mean, these are the kind of things. Christopher Lambert jumped into the airbag and accidentally put a 12-inch cut into the 20 by 20 covering of the bag with his sword. So, you know, what, we've got lightning, we've got rain, we've got punctured airbags. You never know what's going to happen, you know? Oof. The crew showed up at 6 p.m. We got our first shot at 10.35 at night, and camera ramp was at 6 a.m. Hanging and out then, for the sunrise. Uh, yeah. Now, you also can't do that stuff, you know, you have to have a turnaround time for the crew. That was on a Friday night, you see. And then we worked on a Saturday. Then they had Sunday to turn around so that Monday we could start day again. Sunday, we continued silver cup roof two more punctures resulting from swords being dropped and several burn holes resulting from the squibs going off 
for the lightning effect compromised the airbag. 8.30, D. Collins was hit on the chin with a suspended steam pipe, cut his lip, blah, blah, blah. Wait, who? Anyway, um, that was the 7 p.m. Wait, what call. happened? Oh, somebody got cut with something. <laughs> Everything that happened, uh, I get a report on, you know. So that was Saturday. So then we had enough time to turn around so that Monday morning we could start earlier if we wanted. We had a 4 p.m. call. We shot until 6 a.m. And this was the interior of the wrestling match. This was the exterior helicopter. Then another unit was doing the stunt doubles on the sign. The exterior helicopter shot of Krugan's car on the bridge. Uh, another helicopter shot. You see, you got to work that helicopter together. It's too expensive to bring it in, so you work them all together. And then McLeod climbing the ladder, and then the collapse of the structure. Well, it makes me tired just reading this. Uh, <laughs> and more rain delays. It's kind of funny that Russell Mulcahy always wanted rain, and then your shooting schedule gets disrupted by real rain. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, there's a lot of stunts. And there's a lot of stunt actors, you know, they're getting paid between the stunt doubles for the car sequence, the chase of West Side Highway through New York and over the bridge. All of those stunt drivers, plus the actors on the on the sign. Now, going back to the driving stunt of the car coming up the West Side Highway and the two 18 wheeler trucks coming the wrong way at him and him threading the needle right through. We needed a traffic jam. And for some reason, you can't predict exactly how the traffic is going to back up like at 34th Street when you're down at 23rd Street shooting. So I gave my PAs a lot of street grease, which is $100 bills. Ooh. And I said, <laughs> go, go to 23rd Street in the West Side Highway. Find a big truck, a big, big truck. Tell them to run out of gas in the middle of the West Side Highway. Give them a couple hundred bucks, and it'll create a traffic jam. So, that's <laughs> amazing. This is like a little mini bridge gate. I love it. Uh, yeah, you know, you can't. The city loves us, and you try to do everything by that. But uh, street grease always works. <laughs> so, so that's why we're doing Kruger going the wrong way off the West Side Highway, and then designing that stunt. Like I said with Andy, I had one thing all set up and designed where the car could go in through the plate glass window of a clothing store through the clothing store and out another window and still be on the street because I found windows that came all the way down almost to the curb. And, you know, that was going to be spectacular, but they didn't do it because of time. But like I said, working with uh, Armstrongs was one of the highlights of doing Highlander. Uh, although I have to say my stunt coordinator who worked on all my movies got killed a year later in a stunt accident. Oh, no. Vic, Mag Vic Magnata took a car into the Hudson and the windshield exploded inward on him and pressed him against the seat and he wasn't able to get out. Wow, that's so that was a bummer. Yeah. Hey Rewatchers, are you looking for another way to support the Highlander Rewatch podcast? We know you are because you love us just that much. You can find us on patreon.com slash rewatched. That's patreon.com slash rewatched and you can join in and pledge. You can join the team. Kyle, tell us, what is Patreon? Patreon is a crowdfunding website. It is a way to, uh, you know, keep things that wouldn't attract big-name sponsors, like, dare I say, a delightful podcast about a 30-year-old franchise. You know, get real groundswell support to keep them running. So you get to pledge an amount every month and keep this podcast running and free. And if you support us, not only do you get the warm glow in your heart of knowing you have supported other great Highlander fans and 
supporting Highlander-related content, you can get some uh, really cool perks, like a shout-out on the show, our amazing magnet sets, some unique art from rewatcher Eamon, and... For some special elite listeners, even an occasional fan interview to bring your love of Highlander to the world. Wow. So what's this cost? Like a hundred bucks? It costs whatever you want it to cost, my friend. Wow. No amount is too small. No amount is too big. And you can uh, contribute at whatever amount you're comfortable with. You know, if you think our show is worth a dollar a month, we'd love to have it. Become a patron of Highlander Rewatch today. So now we're still doing the exterior tunnel where he comes through the tunnel and the crashes. You know how many crashes there are? Did you see how many? Do you, have, do you have a count? A crash count? You've got the taxi crash. She runs into a taxi. Then there's a second crash. Then there's a third crash. Then there's the moving van. Then there's the motorcycle that he hits. Then he hits the 59th Street Bridge and starts bouncing off the side of the bridge. Every time he hits that, there's a spark, a light which is planted there by the special effects. You know, So they're hitting those spark hits when the car is hitting the rail. So it's hitting the rail. Then they hit Silver Cup. Then they go up on the sign. There's a train coming by. So, you know, there was a lot of lot of stunt work. You know, here's the stunt adjustments just for that night. Uh, Shane, 350. Barnett, three, 350. Steve Hunter, 350. Rudy, 250. Deborah, 200. Three-hour rain delay resulting in non-completion of the night's work. So rain was a pain in the ass, I got to tell you. Street but, but grease doesn't really. work on rain, Yeah, I you guess. can't street <laughs> grease the clouds. It's unfortunate. Well, and, yeah. and it's continuity. You know, you start to shoot something in rain, you want to go back to it, the rain's got to be there again. Plus all the background cars and everything else. But we got it all done, and then I had another unit shooting with Andy that was doing a lot of the stunt work that didn't involve any of the principals. And also, shooting in New York with all these stunts, you know, it's a lot easier in the middle of the night when uh, when there's less traffic to control. What was it like dealing with the city to, to coordinate all these stunts and all these, these well, scenes? Well, that's one reason that John and I and David were hired, is because we have had a great rapport with the city. I mean, really, we were number one with the city. Like, getting in the um, subway on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that was a not everybody could do that with the notice that we had given them. And so we could get almost anything we want as long as we did it legally and were prepared and had great people. The city, you know, they want to be sure that the crews that are working in the city know the city have worked here before. So that's why films come to New York. They hire a local production guy who will hire a local crew. The city doesn't want L.A. guys coming in. They don't know how to make a movie in the city and bring all these extra people in. They want to abide by all the New York laws, and they don't have an expertise like we did. Is there a uh, you know a moment on set which sticks out to you more than any other or a most memorable time? In Highlander or anywhere? Uh, let's start with Highlander. I guess getting all those windows lit all night long for two nights was, was something that stands out because I don't think anybody's ever done that. Well, we got sued by the roof. The owner of Silver Cup building could really? damage to his roof. What happened? But, well, I mean, we had prepared the roof with plywood, but when when all of this heavy equipment was showing up, you know, it it wasn't really enough, and we we did our best. And I think he was just trying to get some extra bucks out of the location fees, so it wasn't that big a deal. But we put down more plywood on the roof right before the shooting, and then I show up and go, "Hey, we can't have this plywood. It's got to look like a roof." Gotta look like shingles. <laughs> so I had to get every painter I could get all night long 
two nights before we showed up to make all that plywood look like shingles. <laughs> wow, that's brutal. You know, Clear and Present was a, a monumental success, too, because the assassination scene in Mexico with Vic Armstrong, that was unbelievable. And I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Talking about Clear and Present yeah. Danger? Yeah, yeah. But that was a big one in my resume. You asked me about Steven Seagal, and I'm not going to say much, except that he was late every day. Oh, he no. <laughs> he had lunch at Gotti's house, and he'd be an hour late getting back. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Why does that not and surprise me? His cousin, Julia Nassau, they, they ended up with a lawsuit between the two. And Flynn, John Flynn, the director, was fine. But trying to work with Seagal was a, was a nightmare for the director. <laughs> For me, and uh, they tried to cheat me out of my credit. I had to sue them for that. Uh, it just was a nightmare. And uh, Seagal put shoe polish on his head. And- <laughs> Wait, he put shoe polish on his head? How did he yeah, apply it? <laughs> to make his scalp look like it's all black hair. Right. Yeah. Um, can't imagine. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to get. You know, I don't want to get into that. No, no, that's I'm totally fine. That, I'm just saying that you asked me about that. Movie, oh, sure, that's sure. Not one of the ones that I, I'm most proud of. Oh, it's fine. Like, um, well, we often do talk about one of our favorite movies, which is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So. For some reason, it always comes up when we're talking about Highlander. I do not know why. <laughs> I think we're of that well, age group that you know kind of grew up with it. Uh, so, if there's any good stories you have from your work on Ninja Turtles, well, we'd love to hear them. See, Turtles was only a week of shooting. Okay, because they shot in North Carolina. And they needed exteriors. So what we shot was the street scenes and the subway scenes. But it was also a nightmare in preparation. Although they did send me the first comic book and all the other cool stuff. That's cool. We did, uh, you know, interior of Charlie's car, exterior street, um, rooftops. Ralph looking at traffic, exterior rooftop. Shooting rooftops in New York is a nightmare. First of all, getting up there, protecting the roofs from the camera tripods and the lighting equipment and everything else is always a problem. Usually a lot of the roofs they want to get to don't have elevators, especially, you know, in the Lower East Side. And the owners of buildings are always not happy about shooting on their roofs. (laughs) So we had three roof shots all that night. And we did uh, exterior city hall. We did interior subway station. At that point in time, the subway people were trying to keep only one movie in the whole subway system at any one time. And they were requiring like three weeks of prep. And, you know, we had to pull some strings to get that approved. And we did the exterior warehouse, the exterior bridge, foot run to the city. You know, the, the, the guys were there in their costume. You know, it was interesting. Exterior of the movie theater, exterior of a street near the movie theater. Um, oh, so you got to film Raph in that trench coat? Yeah. When I believe he saw the movie Critters. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Critters. <laughs> All right. This is an example for Turtles of before we started shooting, okay? This was a Monday through Friday. Monday. Production meeting with the lo- locations. Finalize the holding areas. Electric test of the lights. Building lights for continuity. Hire a street sweeper for the scenes. Finalize the equipment orders. Finalize the crane and scissors lift. New York trucks. Deadline for hiring the crew. All the paperwork. That was on Monday. On Tuesday, location scout of holding areas. So now the guys coming in want to locate a scout of all the holding areas. The teamster captain. Scout the fire hydrants and the wet down areas. Again, more rain. Get the water permits. Discuss fire permits. Wednesday, locations agreement signed. Secure the water permits. Thursday, load out the equipment. Okay. Friday, finish loading out the equipment. Saturday, rest and relax because Monday we're shooting. It's um, a fast turnaround. That's a lot. 
lot to do. Uh, in a week. Yeah, on Monday the crew arrived from North Carolina, and then Monday we had another location scout with all the department heads, and then on Tuesday, September fifth, we started shooting. So when you don't have a lot of prep time, which they didn't want to spend money on, they want, they expect you to do all this preparation in a very tight schedule which is difficult. Whereas on Highlander, we had plenty of time because we had worked with them on sending all of the continuity stuff to the UK. You know, we had a relationship and plenty of time to get everything done. Turtles was just the last minute, come to New York and shoot cheap. The extra prep time shows because you managed to get, you know, one of the most iconic shots in the movie up on the Silver Cup, which I saw someone with a Silver Cup shirt the other day and I was like, I know know what's going on here. Yeah, (laughs) uh, you you asked me what was my most monumental of all my films. Well, originally Highlander wanted to use the Statue of Liberty for that final scene. Oh, right. really? But there's a there's a law that the federal government owns it and nobody can touch it and nobody can shoot on it or anything. You can't get into it. But when I did Remo William, that was during the phase when they were redoing the Statue of Liberty. And they legally transferred ownership to the American French Restoration Company that was putting up the scaffolding and doing all that work for like two years. So when I did Remo Williams, they said, oh, we want to do a great fight on top of a crane, like a big construction crane, you know, the great big long ones that come out. And I said, great, guys, but I think I can do better than the construction crane. I think I can get you on the Statue of Liberty. And you can do Remo Williams where he slides down the arm of the Statue of Liberty. Because I was dealing then with a construction company and not with the parks or the federal government, So I made a deal with them, and it was very tight. I mean, we could only have so many people on the scaffolding, but we were able to get all over the Statue of Liberty. And then the company built a replica from the chest up in Mexico for the actual sliding down the arm and the other stuff. But in Remo Williams, we're up at the theory. I was above the flame, standing on the scaffolding above the flame with cameras shooting down at the city. You should see that movie. That is, And that was, director was, uh, I can't remember, he's a great director. He, he did Garp. I did Garp with him. Mm. Oh, um, Life According to Garp. And two I'm movies with Robin Williams, back to back. With Robin, I mean, I spent two years basically on the road with Robin. Do you have any stories about being on the road? Well, Robin was, you know, we did Garp and we did Survivors. Survivors was a nightmare because we were shooting in Vermont and it was a snow movie. Uh, snow, rain, night, it's all a problem. And uh, Vermont, everyone's yeah. nightmare. <laughs> you know, but, but we thought there'd be plenty of snow. So we shot all the interiors, no snow. We shot everything close to the cabins with a little bit of snow. They never got a wide expanse for most of the movie. So we had to move the crew in the middle of shooting to Lake Tahoe, where there was plenty of snow. And we had to move the dogs, the dog sleds, even the trees, some trees that would match because that didn't match the Vermont. And, you know, three days we had to move it. We rented our own 747 and moved the whole crew to Lake Tahoe and set up and shooting the next week. So that was a monumental task. Wow. But with Robin, he was just always on. Do you know Garp? Do you know that scene in Garp? Yes, it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but it's a, it's a good movie. You know, when his wife is having a baby and he's so in love with the baby and she's got the big stomach and he pulls the covers down so the belly's hanging out and he rides a, with the lipstick, he draws a smiley face on her tummy. Then he pulls the blanket down a little bit more and he goes, my baby's got a beard. Oh. <laughs> well, you know, that broke up the clip. That just broke up the crew, you know, obviously. He would do that kind of stuff all the time. And the director, um, George Roy Hill, who was a really great 
director wore a tie every day, you know. He had Robin, who was the first feature. He'd done Mork and Mindy and stuff, but never a big feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Glenn Close, who had done Barnum on Broadway, and but never done a big movie. And John Lithgow, who had also never done. So he had three of his principal actors shooting a big feature for the first time. And he was a real disciplinarian. And he really got Robin. He said, OK, we're breaking. Go home, Robin. Oh, wow. Wow. Back, come, back, come back when you want to shoot and be serious. You know, but it took that. And that that really helped Robin in his career because it, it gave him uh, some discipline, which he really needed. Interesting. And, yeah, uh, discipline isn't the word that comes to mind when I think of him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But he was always like, I mean, he was very nice to the crew. What I usually judge an actor by is how personable they are to the crew and how they interact. Like Philip Noyce. I did two movies with Philip Noyce. You know, he was difficult for some of the Paramount producers, but I, I found him great. I mean, you could talk to him. He was he was always asking people what they thought about things. In fact, it was too much. When we're scouting for Sliver in New York, a Sliver building which is a unique little skinny little high rise. We'd be walking around. He'd ask some stranger and say, well, what do you think of this? And I go, come on, Philip, we got a good move. <laughs> Fine, but you don't need to ask everybody you see some question. But I, I loved working with Philip. Clear and present danger with him and sliver with him. Mm-hmm. But I think the Statue of Liberty was one of my best accomplishments in terms of helping creatively a film and, and working with the Armstrongs on uh, sliver for that stunt. Yeah, definitely. No, those are those are great accomplishments, and and I don't know if we mentioned that the uh, the Armstrongs are great, and Andy was on our show. Uh, uh, last oh, really? Year. So, yeah, yeah, it was a great uh, talk with him. And we had to bring this sword guy in from England. I forgot his name. Bob uh, Anderson. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't you couldn't have a sword without him in there, right? right? And opening it up and inspecting it and handing it to the actor and then taking it back. I mean, I really appreciate the sword work in the movie. How did uh, that end up working with the shooting? Because there's a lot of stunts additionally that went on with the sparks and things like that. that went yeah, on with the but I think that was done in the UK. Like I said, we shot everything, anything that had water in it, you know, the tank, though that fight they did. But if you, you look at everything that shows the city of New York in the background, we did, or the train moving. And Clancy Brown was cool. You know, he scared everybody to death. <laughs> yeah, was it, what was it like working with him? Well, it was good. I mean, you know, he didn't have a lot of scenes, but Sean Connery, I don't think what he had, just a, one day or something. Yeah, he was only um, around for a few days. But there was a lot of stuff we shot at the zoo that they didn't use, and, uh, and the ending was different. What was the different ending that you shot? Okay, three UPS guys unload McLeod's aquarium off a truck. Did they, did they use that? No. Yeah, that's that's not in the movie. There is an aquarium. There is an aquarium, yeah. Okay, well, we had a shot, I guess it wasn't important, of it being offloaded and going in into what was his exterior house. Well, it's important to show his abiding love of fish. That was critical to your right, understanding of the character. Yeah, <laughs> more, water. more water. That's right. I think the ending was a little different. The penguin pool at the thing. The penguin Kruger, pool? Yeah, Kruger in the children's enclosure at the zoo. Brenda watches as a kid hands him a rabbit. He strokes it. He struggles hitting it hard on the head. So he kills a rabbit. There's a rabbit end. killing scene that you shot? <laughs> That's madness. Brenda McLeod touring the Bronx Zoo. The giraffe enclosure. He's pensive. She's energized. She says, I have had it all laid out. Forensic in three years lecture 
at Columbia, 10-year husband, couple of kids. A lonely wolf in a cage is staring at him, connection between man and beast. There's a bird cage where a parrot reaches. What's interesting, because um, one of the themes that we talk about in the movie that maybe isn't developed as much is this kind of like oneness between humans and nature. Mm-hmm. And it seems like some of these zoo shots that didn't make it into the final film are related to that. Yeah, then she says... Uh, if. It's all you want an occasional night together, that's fine with me. All around the zoo, wildlife starts to act strangely. Tigers claw their cages, monkeys go crazy, hyena attack one another. Bears try to climb out of their pit. The hair is on the back of McLeod's neck, stands up, his mind reels. McLeod says, it's not that simple. And then she says, you think I'm going to turn you into a, mor- a moran? From every direction, shrieks, crowds, and trumpeting. Visitors think it's feeding time, but McLeod knows differently. His eyes are everywhere, searching for the Krugan. McLeod, no, I don't think uh, you'll do that. He reaches for her hand. She pulls it away. Well, that scene was in there where, you know, she rejected him. But none of this stuff with, uh, with it, which we shot all this. Wow. I, I mean, it sounds like the animals, are they upset because the Krugan is coming or because they're not into uh, casual hookups? They're probably I don't just know. too long. Yeah. <laughs> they probably had to cut they cut it because um, Brenda says I love you but you're locked away in your own private world of memories no future unable to care afraid so anyway that's all a lot of stuff that was three pages that's really interesting three, two and a half pages that we shot at the zoo that didn't show up but I don't think it hurt the film no I think it still holds up and frankly I can do without the Kurgan killing a rabbit in my life I can I can live without that Sure. Well, I mean, he takes the rabbit. I don't think we actually see him breaking his neck or anything, but <laughs> the kids uh, hand it to him. Also, I would never see that man and be like, "Let me give it a give that man a rabbit." Yeah, give that <laughs> man a rabbit. <laughs> but one thing we like to ask all of our guests as we start to come to a close here is, if you had the option, would you want to be immortal? No, absolutely not. I, I would like. I'm 72. I would like to live to 100. My mother lived to 99, but if I could just live to 100, that would be enough for me. I don't really need to. Although I'm a history buff and I enjoy reliving the history that I read about, but I don't want to actually be there because I probably wouldn't like it or I'd want to change it. That sounds about right. I always think about that about anything set in the past. It's like, oh, well, this is great until the first time you get sick or uh, get bored. Um, Let's say you're immortal, okay? And 50 years from now, you've got to still be able to deal with Trump. (laughs) That's a good reason not to be immortal. I I feel like uh, I I do feel like I've lived 100 years. Yeah, (laughs) really. uh, (laughs) Time moves slowly. Well, thank you so much, Edwin, for taking the time to speak with us and talk Highlander and, uh, you know, find Give us another way to sneak in Ninja Turtles, which is something we love. Is there anything you want to plug or you want our audience to to take a look at? Well, they can follow me on Facebook. I mean, um, I do have a group called Georgia Film Locations because I live in Georgia now, which is the premier state for filming. Okay, great. Sounds awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a very special Chronicle episode with Edwin Itzy Atkins, the production manager on Highlander and some other great films you might know like Clear and Present Danger and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can follow him on Facebook and uh, we'll be sharing some of his stuff over the next week to give you a few extra tidbits. Also, if they can follow me on IMDb, that's where they can really see my full... Yeah, definitely. Yeah, if 
there's any films that you haven't checked out, uh, make sure to look at Edwin's uh, page and check out those films too. You'll be surprised by uh, how many films you will know and love on yep. that list. So make about sure you scoop it up. About 35 features. Not too shabby. Well, thank you so much, Edwin. We'll be back okay. uh, next week with another episode of the Highlander Rewatch podcast. We've been your rewatchers. I'm Keith. This is Kyle. This is Eamon. And with special guest Edwin. Edwin, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank, thank you so you. much, Edwin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.